from the newsroom of the Washington Post. ¿Cómo está? Te habla Elisa Hernández del Washington Post. This is Cleve Lutzen with the Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with the Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, January 8th. Today, finally, a kind of concession from President Trump. Plus, what will happen in a 50-50 Senate and an update from Georgia. Four years ago, in January of 2017, President Trump stood on the steps of the Capitol and was sworn into office. What a great honor to be able to introduce for the first time ever anywhere the 45th President of the United States of America, Donald J. Trump. And he declared an end to what he called American carnage. This American carnage stops right here and stops right now. Phil Rucker is the White House bureau chief for The Post. And little did we imagine that four years later, at the sunset of his presidency, that Trump would bring American carnage physically to the Capitol. We will never give up. We will never concede. It doesn't happen. You don't concede when there's theft involved. Our country has had enough. We will not take it anymore. And that's what this is all about. Ordering his supporters, directing them, inciting them. That was a visual of American carnage that we all saw play out for hours on Wednesday in terrifying form. And it was sort of a coda to these Trump years. I would like to begin by addressing the heinous attack on the United States Capitol. Like all Americans, I am outraged by the violence, lawlessness, and mayhem. So let's start by talking about this video from President Trump on Thursday night. What was that? America is and must always be a nation of law and order. You know, we've been waiting since the election on November 3rd to hear President Trump concede, uh, to hear him acknowledge that he had lost the election to Joe Biden. And we never heard it. Now Congress has certified the results. A new administration will be inaugurated on January 20th. My focus now turns to ensuring a smooth, orderly, and seamless transition of power. But what we saw on Thursday night released uh, on his Twitter was what amounted to, for Trump, uh, something of a concession. He, he didn't actually say he conceded. He didn't say he lost the election, but he acknowledged for the first time that there would be a new president and a new administration. This moment calls for healing and reconciliation. 2020 has been a challenging time for our people. A menacing pandemic has upended the lives of our citizens isolated millions in their homes. In his video on Thursday, Trump condemned the violence generally at the Capitol, but he didn't have any words for the police officer who died or for the dozens of law enforcement personnel who were injured, some of them hospitalized. To those who engaged in the acts of violence and destruction, you do not represent our country. And to those who broke the law, you will pay. He said that he had immediately... I immediately deployed the National Guard 
and federal law enforcement to secure the building and expel the intruders. And that, according to our reporting, is just not true. It took a while for the National Guard to be deployed, and it actually required uh, the work of Vice President Pence, who was working very closely with Pentagon leaders as well as congressional leaders to make that deployment happen uh, expeditiously. The president, according to our reporting, was disengaged from that process, not interested in providing the federal help right away. And what was happening behind the scenes to get President Trump to this point where he's giving basically the closest we'll get to a concession speech? You know, the president did not do this willingly. Advisors for two months now have been trying to get him to give some form of a speech like this. But that intensified uh, after the mob riot at the Capitol on Wednesday. Uh, His team uh, implored him to acknowledge the results of the election, implored him to give up the ruse uh, that he had won in a landslide to stop lying to the American people and to his supporters. But there were other dynamics at play, too. The White House counsel, Pat Cipollone, warned the president that he could actually have legal exposure for his involvement, for his rhetoric in inciting that mob, inciting his supporters, that doing that would help protect the president to some degree from any legal exposure he could face once he leaves office. And once he leaves office, he's no longer the president. He doesn't have that executive privilege. He becomes much more vulnerable. Specifically, the U.S. attorney in D.C. has warned that the president's words and actions were not off limits in their investigation of the mob riot at the Capitol. And so there's a very real possibility that the president's speech that he delivered on the ellipse could become evidence that could damage, could even uh, lead to prosecution of the president for his complicity in the attack. And what is your sense of how President Trump has been responding and reacting to all of this, to seeing these people invading the Capitol basically at his behest, to all of this discussion around potentially removing him from office? I mean, how has he been feeling over the past couple of days? You know, it's a great question, and the answer is pretty simple. He's not handling it well, uh, which should come as no surprise to those of us who've who've chronicled and followed this presidency over the years. But it's really extraordinary what we're hearing from uh, his aides, his advisors, his associates. One described him as something like Mad King George. Another said he's been acting like a total monster. A third said that what's going on behind the scenes at the White House is, is insane. You know, there's deep, deep concern about how he's handled this. And a few things to point out. The president has been raging about Vice President Pence, very upset that Pence adhered to the Constitution as opposed to tried to break the law on behalf of the president by overturning the election. The vice president doesn't even have that power in that joint session of Congress, but the president nonetheless expected him basically go rogue. And I think for many of us just watching this has been really stunning to see. I mean, Pence, who you could argue is the most loyal member of President Trump's administration, just being thrown under the bus, essentially, for doing what he was constitutionally required to do. That's exactly right, Martine. And what we've seen in this presidency is loyalty is really a one-way street. You know, President Trump is not loyal to the people who are loyal to him. And Pence is learning that the hard way at the very end of this administration. Pence, for four years now, has tried to be a supplicant. He's tried to back up the president no matter what the president does, whether 
it's those remarks, his equivocations over Charlottesville or his impeachment. There are a couple other things, Martine, that's driving the president, too. Uh, mm-hmm. One, we heard when he watched his supporters take over, occupy the House and the Senate, he at first was bemused and he thought, oh, my goodness, these people are fighting for me. And he liked what he saw. And then he started to realize he didn't like what he saw. And here's why. According to one of one of the president's advisors, he didn't like that they didn't look classy, that they were wearing costumes, that they had long hair, that it was sort of this ragtag militia looking group. And Trump just thought that was not a classy look to see them rummaging the halls and offices of the Capitol. He thought it was it, it was not classy enough to represent him. It's hard for me to imagine what a a classy version of invading the Capitol would look like. Well, it's hard for all of us to imagine that. But the the president was more taken uh, with image, with visual, with aesthetic uh, than with the actual fact that these were people trying to attempt a coup. And as President Trump was watching this or watching the reactions to what was happening at the Capitol, is there any reporting to suggest that he started to be scared about how this could and and might blow back on him? You know, he was afraid insofar as it could damage him politically, that his supporters uh, would walk away from him. And and some of them have. Senator Lindsey Graham, his good friend and golfing buddy, condemned him on the floor of the United States Senate. Uh, Trump and I, we've had a hell of a journey. I hate it being this way. Oh my God, I hate it. From my point of view, he's been a consequential president. But today, first thing you'll see. All I can say is uh, count me out. Enough is enough. I've tried to be helpful. Other Republican officials were backing away. Bill Barr, for for two years, the the loyal attorney general, uh, said what the president did was wrong. Late Thursday afternoon, about an hour or so before President Trump released his video, we got a statement from the White House press secretary, Kaylee McEnany. She came into the briefing room. Let me be clear. The violence we saw yesterday at our nation's capital was appalling, reprehensible, and antithetical to the American way. We condemn it, the president and this administration, in the strongest possible terms. But it was really interesting. She did not defend the president himself. She did not defend his conduct uh, or, or, or claim that he had no role in the attack, which was striking because this is somebody who has been his paid defender. She's been willing to utter any number of lies on behalf of the president to the American people. But in this case, she simply wasn't willing to defend her boss. And I'm also curious about how that distancing is happening inside the White House. I mean, the people who work most closely with the president, are they worried about their futures? Or we've seen all this discussion around more resignations. Is that an attempt for these people to try to salvage their reputations in these last couple of weeks of President Trump's presidency? Martine, it certainly seems that way. You know, we've seen now two cabinet secretaries, Elaine Chao and Betsy DeVos, resign. We've seen a number of White House officials resign. Others who are staying put are are putting out word privately that they're only staying there because they want to do their part to help ensure 
an orderly transition to the Biden administration and that they want to try to protect against any further damages by the president. You know, inside the White House, there's not a single defender of the president. Not a single person has stepped forward to defend his conduct or his his role, his complicity in the mob attack on the Capitol. And I think what's going on is reputation uh, damage. These folks know he's not going to be president come January 20th, and they need to find employment. By resigning now, perhaps you don't quite sully your character and you can find a corporate board appointment or or some other uh, role in public life uh, after this presidency is over. I think that's the calculation a lot of these people are making. But you have to wonder why now and why didn't they ever step forward or resign or speak out earlier? I also wonder how much of that sudden distancing from other Republicans is a reflection of the fact that President Trump failed to help them retain Republican control of the Senate and that they're sort of realizing at this incredibly late stage that President Trump cares more about himself and his power than about the actual future of the Republican Party or or whoever controls the Senate after he's gone. You know, I, I don't think they're blind to the fact that Trump has always prioritized his own interests, his own uh, personal and political advances over those of the party. But there's always been this bargain in place where, you know, they would other Republicans would line up behind Trump and in exchange they would win and they would be able to accomplish things like lowering taxes, like installing conservatives, judges on the federal bench. That's all gone because Trump is a loser. Uh, he has the stench of loserdom <laughs> at this point. He has he is now responsible for Republicans losing their majority in the House, losing their majority in the Senate, and of course losing the White House. And so there's you know, he hasn't lived up to his part of the bargain. And I think that's one of the reasons why Republicans feel suddenly uh, more free, more able to distance themselves and to try to turn a page and 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 think about new leadership. And as you mentioned, President Trump is thinking about his political future after this, but also, I mean, the very real prospect of him potentially being impeached in the next two weeks, um, the continuing discussion around the 25th Amendment and what it would look like if the cabinet voted to remove him. Does it seem feasible to you that there is a world in which President Trump will be removed from office? And how are he and his closest advisors actually responding to that or trying to, like, strategize around how to stay in office for the next two weeks? You know, it's certainly feasible, and I wouldn't rule anything out in politics in the Trump era. (laughs) We we are continually surprised. But I have to say it's somewhat unlikely. There are only two weeks left in his presidency, not even that much. And in order to invoke the 25th Amendment, it would require a majority support of the cabinet as well as uh, from the vice president to remove the president from office. You know, while there have been some uh, resignations from the cabinet, we have not heard any rumblings that anywhere near a majority of the cabinet members feel uh, ready to to make that move, let alone Vice President Pence. Impeachment, much more likely, but that's a more complicated process. That's a legislative process. The House would have to, uh, you know, do some sort of speedy investigation and, and vote to impeach him. And it would then go to the Senate where the president would stand trial. Uh, we saw this all play out last year and it takes time. I'm also curious about what your reaction has been to all of this, because I think in a lot of conversations that I've had with reporters who've covered President Trump closely, that this 
actually isn't that surprising. Or in some ways, it feels like an inevitable end to uh, what President Trump's administration has been building toward all along. What have you made of this stunning end to the Trump presidency? We could see this coming back in 2016 and 2015 when he first ran for president. This is somebody who wanted to amass and perpetuate and then protect power at any and all cost, even if it included burning down the country. He doesn't care about that. He cares about himself. You know, watching Wednesday as the president stood there and incited a mob attack on the, the U.S. Capitol, that was shocking because we've never seen it in this country before, but it was wholly unsurprising because this is Donald Trump and we've never had a president like this before. You know, I think the thing that we as journalists and all Americans really need to grapple with is that it's been clear this is who Donald Trump is, and yet so many people in this country follow him as their leader and want him as their president. And 74 million Americans voted two months ago to give him another four years in office. And so this is what a fairly large chunk of America wants and wants to follow and believes in. This is as much a reflection, I think, of the country that we're in right now as it is uh, of Donald Trump and, and his character. Phil Rucker is the White House bureau chief for The Post. In a tweet on Friday morning, President Trump announced that he does not plan to attend Biden's inauguration. That would make him at least the fourth president in history to skip his successors swearing in. After Wednesday's attack on the Capitol, there was something close to a coming-together moment in the Senate. Senator from Nevada. Mr. Vice President. Lawmakers calling for unity and consensus and a new commitment to bipartisanship. I know that this room is full of leaders of both parties who love this country, and many believe that for America to succeed... Our politics must find common ground. And that has never been clearer than today. America isn't Hatfields and McCoys, blood feud forever. America's a union. There's a lot that's broken in this country, but not anything that's so big that the American people can't rebuild it. So that this moment is a moment where we come together rather than be divided where in a bipartisan fashion, we craft a strategy to restore issues to the floor, bills and amendments and debate and decisions before the public. So, out of a dark moment can shine a bright light, a renewal. But how long is this kumbaya moment going to last? After the Georgia runoffs, the Senate is evenly split along party lines. And in less than two weeks, when Vice President-elect Harris is sworn in, Democrats will have control. So how will that actually work? Uh, Unlike most things that happen in the Senate, there's not sort of a clear precedent. That's reporter David Farenthold, who's been looking into how the Senate navigates a 50-50 split. It's only happened three times that that the Senate has been split like this, and only one of them was really in modern times where the Senate worked the way that it does now. That was in 2001. Back then, they agreed to a sort of a power-sharing agreement where 
they split committees 50-50. Uh, they split the money for committees 50-50. And they allowed Democrats to have a little more power to bring votes to the floor. In, in hindsight, the Senate cast this as like, well, what a great achievement of working together. In practice, every day was a fight, and it was a very frustrating arrangement for everybody. And it only lasted about six months. It started in January of 2001, and by June of 2001, the Democrats had convinced a Republican, Jim Jeffords of Vermont, to switch sides. In June 2001, Jeffords switches to be a Democrat, and the party control switched to the Democrats. As much bipartisan cooperation as there was then, and as happy as Democrats were to have a little bit of power, they were still scheming all the time behind the scenes to pull a Republican to their side and take real power. That could happen again. Some of the same staffers who arranged that setup in 2001 are actually still working for the Democratic and Republican leaders in the Senate. But that was a really different time. There was a much more cooperative Senate to begin with. I don't see it happening in the same way. I think the Democrats are much more likely to just say, look, it's our Senate. We're running it. You know, you guys, even though we're tied 50-50, it's really 51-50. So then what happens to various proposals that Biden has been putting out and the idea of, of what we'll be able to pass or not pass? What are the kinds of legislation that we could see uh, still get across with a 50-50 split? And what are the things that are more difficult because control of the Senate is so close? Well, the first thing we're going to see is that it will enable the Democrats to get Biden's nominees through and nominees for cabinet positions, for judgeships, for a Supreme Court seat, if that ever comes open. Um, you only need 51 seats to pass that. If the Democrats can hold all their people together, they could they could approve any nominee. That's the most important thing right off the bat. Uh, the Republicans will be able to hold up or, or strike some of Biden's nominees. After that, uh, you know, obviously it takes 60 votes to pass major legislation. But I think to your point, I, I mean, I'm not completely sure that everyone understands the way that the 60 vote rule works in a lot of cases in the Senate. And that in the case of more ambitious things that Biden might want to pursue, that that is still going to be difficult in a world where you have a 50-50 Senate. That's right. I mean, it's worth noting that the Senate could just change its own rules with a majority vote, a 51 vote rule and get rid of that 60 vote rule, um, which is what the Republicans did. Did for um, Supreme Court justices when it used to be you needed 60 votes for a Supreme Court justice and they changed it to 51. The problem is that Democrats would need all of their members to agree to that kind of vote change. And Joe Manchin, the moderate West Virginia Democrat, who is now basically the most important person in the Senate, he's not going to go along with that. So I think you will see them sticking with this weird arrangement where they can't really pass anything unless they call it budget reconciliation. I want to talk more about Manchin, senator from West Virginia, and what his role will be right now. Because basically, it's the situation where if he decides that he's not down with something that, de that the Democrats are doing, that it cannot happen. So how will that affect what kinds of plans Democrats pursue in the coming months? The power that Manchin has now, I mean, he is not the majority leader, but in some ways he is. He's the majority maker is such that it's going to have a huge impact on things that Manchin cares about. And I think in the past that has been coal, energy, rural development, things that affect West Virginia. That's been his pitch to West Virginians is even as the state goes red, I bring you a lot of things from from Washington. So I think they'll see a lot of attention to West Virginia and there'll be limits on things like Manchin is, is somebody who has not gone for big climate change legislation in the past. I, I imagine that will stay the same. Uh, and he's also been somebody who's been in favor of 
pretty moderate gun control policies, but not very far left on that issue. So I don't think we'll see a lot of movement there either. And I think that dynamic has so many implications for the Democratic Party, that this is a moment where Democrats are are celebrating. We, you know, we got the House, we got the presidency, we've got the Senate. But you're also seeing, you know, this divide of the more liberal wing of the party, the more centrist wing of the party. And it seems like the dynamic in the Senate now is going to exacerbate that where the Democrats will still have to hew more centrist if they're going to keep those 51 votes. That's right. I mean, I'm sure you will see Democrats unhappy, you know, once they get over the initial euphoria of having won the Senate, unhappy at, you know, that their dreams of a Green New Deal or their dreams of immigration reform are not going to pass. But I don't think Manchin is the only person holding that back. If it wasn't Manchin, it would be, you know, Kristen Sinema or Mark Kelly from Arizona. You know, the, the Senate is a institution that's weighted to be more conservative. Just the way that it's set up makes it more conservative. So if you're going to keep the Senate, keep your votes together now, and if you're going to keep the Senate in 2022, probably the policies that will help you do, help you now win over Manchin may help you in 2022. So Democrats will be disappointed, but it's a matter of keeping the Senate for the long term, playing to Manchin and constituencies he like the, those he represents, is probably a smart idea for them. David Farenthold is a national reporter for The Post. You can already see how Senator Manchin is becoming a critical vote for Senate Democrats. On Friday, Biden proposed a major new coronavirus relief package. It would boost stimulus payments to $2,000. But Manchin said this afternoon that he's not sure that he would support that plan, unless the checks were more narrow in scope and targeted to people who really need them. In-laws, love them or hate them, you're pretty much stuck with them. And when you're a ruler in the Middle Ages, that can be a serious problem. It might even land you dead. I'm Dan Jones, and on season four of This Is History, I'm telling the story of England's weirdest king, Henry III. He's in way over his head, and he's surrounded by bloodthirsty relatives with their eyes on his throne. To listen, search This Is History and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And now, one more thing from a voice that some listeners might remember. Last week, we aired an episode of our podcast about the Georgia runoffs, and we talked to a man named Bob Melvin. He's a county commissioner, and we hung out with him as he went knocking on the doors of voters. Hey, good morning. How y'all doing? Let me share some information with y'all before y'all leave. As we mentioned at the end of that episode, Bob ended up getting COVID. And we heard from a lot of our listeners who were concerned. You know, after we published the podcast, one of the most overwhelming questions that we got on Twitter and different social media was, how is Bob Melvin doing? No, yeah. Well, Bob is hanging in here. On Wednesday morning, after the results from Georgia came in, our producer Ted Muldoon called Bob to see how he was feeling as he was watching the outcome of a historic election. Just don't like feeling sick. You know, no one does, but at the biggest hour that I would like to be out there and I'm on my home quarantine in my room and, and I can't get out there to celebrate. In all of the events of this week, it might be easy to overlook the fact that Georgia elected a black senator and a Jewish senator for the first time ever. 
And Bob said that he takes a lot of pride in the work that he did to make that happen. Hey, good morning. How you doing? Mr. Battle. Is Mr. Battle? Mr. Battle, I know you know me, Bob Melvin. About three weeks ago, we visited Mr. Battle. We are trying to do some uh, canvassing for early voting. Uh, do we have you down to get out and vote on January 5th? Mm, well, oh, I got, I, I got to sign anything. Did you vote in the last election? No. When last time you voted? Ooh, it's been some gear. Oh, come on, Mr. Battle. Come last, on, Mr. Battle. Every time I voted, I voted for uh, Obama. Mm. And he just put up a fight that he wasn't going to vote. And I was asking him, why, Mr. Battle? He's like, oh, I just don't want to vote. And I was like, well, we're going to make sure that you get there. I'm going to come back and talk with you. And I'll check this when I get home. And I'll probably be back in town tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we'll see you. Tell Harold I said hi. Okay, I will. Yes, sir. Ms. Cassetta called me. She saw him at the polling place. He voted yesterday to hear that he showed up. You know, I thought he wasn't, but we kept after him, and he 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 really he really came through, and uh, that was really rewarding. No matter what we had done, uh, the six months leading up to the election, that one person walked in made it all worthwhile or what we had been out there trying to do and the message that we were trying to push. A lot of people that we had signed up and talked with was their first time voting, and, and that really helped. I think it was like four or five people their first time ever voting on yesterday. And so what was shocking to me that they missed the um, primary and the general election, but they caught the runoff. What do you feel like is your next question in your mind? The next question that I feel for Georgia is um, how do we bridge the rural communities and get the help and assistance that we need around education, health care, and infrastructure? Because now that we that we we're there and we have the pieces in place, what are we going to be able to do? Uh, how are we going to be able to maneuver? And that's really going to tell the story. Are the candidates going to come back into the small communities and have these roundtable events? Are we going to sit down and really get some dialogue going? And I think when people are able to see something happening, then they will have a, a sense of hope that, you know something? Yeah, this person, they are true to their word. It just feels like after months of them making the case that, you know, voters need to show up for these candidates, whether or not now that these candidates have won, whether or not they'll show up for the voters. Right, right, right. That was Macon County Commissioner Bob Melvin. He spoke with producer Ted Muldoon. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. 
On a previous version of this episode, we mistakenly said that Trump would be the second president to skip his successor's inauguration. In fact, there have been at least three others, John Adams, John Quincy Adams, and Andrew Johnson. Our executive producer is Maggie Penman. Our senior producer is Rena Flores. Our editors are Alexis Diao and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. Our producers are Lena Muhammad and Jordan Marie Smith. Renny Svernovsky is our associate producer. The post-director of audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, The Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.